if you're buying a domain name at GoDaddy, you want to smash your head. Like finding a domain, seeing if it's available, putting your cards like, wow, that was easy. And then it's just like puke. They just puke offers on you to the point where you're like, I don't even, I think I just bought an email server. I'm not sure. Welcome to Beyond the Cart presented by Lightburn. I'm Nora. And I'm Andy. And this is a podcast all about e-commerce and our journey developing our own direct-to-consumer e-commerce site from the ground up. Today, we'll be talking all things user experience design. We'll share some of our pet peeves when it comes to bad UX, as well as some quick wins you can take action on today to improve your customer's experience of your e-commerce site. Today, we're very excited to have our first guest on. We've got Caitlin Mackey, who is our lead UX UI designer. Caitlin, welcome to Beyond the Cart. Hi, thank you so much. Do you want to tell everyone just a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So as Nora said, I am the lead UX UI designer at Lightburn. Typically, I work in programs like Adobe XD and Figma and Sketch. At Lightburn, we use Adobe XD and I create a lot of the I create all of the visual components that go into online experiences, whether that's an application or uh, a website. And I also, what we're talking about specifically today is that user experience portion that involves guiding somebody through that online digital experience and making sure that it is a high quality process that isn't confusing to anybody. Thank you. We are super excited to have you here because Andy and I could go on and on on this topic, especially when we start getting into bad UX. Mm -hmm. We both have our rants, I think, but we really wanted to have somebody who, you know, day in and out is thinking about users and, and is really surfacing that empathetic approach to user experience. So I feel free if you disagree with something that we say. I think Andy and I have definitely disagreed on on these topics sometimes. So we're excited to to have you here to either call us out or <laughs> reinforce some of these important things that we're going to be talking about. Great. And e-commerce really does surface a lot of, of instances of somewhat conflicting goals. But I think, you know, there's lots of ways that you can find good... You you can create good UX around those business goals. But one one more thing that I wanted to talk about before we start really getting into UX as it pertains to e-commerce is how do you figure out if you have a bad user experience? How do you know? Well, right. Yeah, that's that's a good question because it's very subjective, in my opinion. If you aren't making sales, that's a good sign. <laughs> if you're not selling as much stuff as you want to, you might have a problem. You might also have a price problem. You might have a shipping problem. Who knows? What What do you think? I, I can think of a few really high level, quick ways to identify possible UX problems in an e-commerce site. One would be you could look at your Google Analytics and see what your conversions are looking like, right? Conversions is kind of interesting to me because if you look at that as a sign of user experience, I think it could be misleading. Say you had a 4% conversion rate, which is pretty good for e-commerce across all industries. 
but maybe you could have a 6%, you know? So I think you have to have a benchmark for conversion rates as a, as a indicator of good or bad user experience. Yeah. And I think if we're kind of talking about benchmarks, you know, Andy, you, you made the comment that UX can be subjective and I would push back on that a little bit. I, I think you know, there is an international organization for standardization, and they define usability as the extent to which a product can be used by specified users to achieve specific goals with effectiveness, efficiency, and satisfaction in a specified context of use. So, you know, that's a pretty tight definition of what something needs to accomplish to be usable. And then within that, you're kind of thinking about, you know, four main things, your users, goals, context, and satisfaction. And all of those things play into, you know, being able to measure whether or not you have a quality user experience. So if you're thinking about your users, you know, is the product serving the people that you are trying to serve, you know, the goals, are they, are they able to accomplish the things that they want to on your site? Like, can they, can they check out? Can they find the things that they need to find? And then, you know, there are, there are really great ways to measure these things using both qualitative and quantitative metrics. So, you know, obviously qualitative being, uh, you know, doing user surveys and understanding if people are actually feeling good about the site, you know, do, are they satisfied? Uh, there are different kinds of surveys that you can put out to analyze that information. And then you've got your, your quantitative metrics that are like that task success rate, task completion time, the conversion rate that you mentioned. And all of those things are, are you know, KPIs that you can measure in different ways, setting, you know, reasonable goals for your site or goals that are targeted towards what you're trying to accomplish is going to be really important when starting to do that more minute evaluation. But I do think that because it, because you can measure things like that and set those, those smart goals that, you know, it takes some of that subjectivity out of it and it becomes pretty objective. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I want, I'm curious to know, Caitlin, from you, because we haven't really had a chance together to dig into this too much. Mm -hmm. If you were set loose on a new client that has a, a current e-commerce site and we're deciding what to do with it, what would be your top couple of things that you would want to do right away that could quickly give us a sense of, you know, are things in decent shape? Are we you know, in crisis mode, what would you want to look at from a UX perspective first? I think I would want to really figure out, you know, how are people engaging with the site? You know, if it's an e if you know, in the e-commerce setting, you know, how, how many times are they checking out? Are people abandoning baskets? They're not actually completing the purchase. You know, why is that? I think that's going to be something really important to define. You know, what is the bounce rate from the site? How often are people leaving? If people are clicking on an ad to your site and then they get there and are immediately leaving, you know, that's going to be a red flag. I think those are some of the things that I would look at first. Yeah. And I guess I would weigh in on that even before you look at conversion rates and bounce rates. I, and we have this happen all the time, right? Client will come to us and be like, Hey, we want to grow. First thing, the very first thing I always do, if it's an existing site is like, Where's the traffic coming from? Because, and, and Caitlin, we just had this situation where it's like, they had really low conversion rates, high bounce rates. And then I realized like whoever was running their digital marketing was just sending gobs of bullshit garbage traffic. So it's like, well, that kind of <laughs> skews the metric completely, right? And they weren't bogus. It was legitimate traffic, but it was like clearly some sort of click farm, really mm. bad 
poorly selected keywords on some of their Google campaigns. So it's like, yeah, your traffic numbers are growing. They're awesome, but your conversion rate is garbage. Well, it's mm-hmm. not actually as bad because if you if you exclude that segment of traffic, which we've decided, concluded was really not good traffic, what's the conversion rate there? So I think I think analytics is great. I guess my point with that is analytics is awesome. I, I agree with both of you that analytics is a starting point, but you got to be careful to make sure... Mm-hmm. You know, if you know that the traffic you're sending to the site is actually that user you're trying to convert and not just traffic for traffic's sake, yeah, then the metrics are are, are perfect. That's a great point. And I think it, it all comes back to this layering in of fact finding. And I had somebody once compare it to like being um, like a private investigator or a detective. And, you know, like a crime show has the big board of suspects. You've got all these strings and connectors and stuff. And and you can't do this process necessarily in a super linear way because you might start looking at conversion rates and, you, and then you realize, oh, well, now I have to go back to the traffic sources. Now I have to go to the ads themselves and see what quality those are. Now I have to look at, you know, some some other data entirely. And so it isn't always a linear process. You're you're kind of circling through all of these tools that you would use, which can seem overwhelming when, you know, we're used to doing this every day. But for what for a client of ours or somebody who's embarking on this on their own, that sounds like a lot. And and so you may ask, like, is it okay to to have to let some bad UX through? Is it okay to let it ride? And I would I would argue, no, it isn't. Loyalty is not necessarily going to get you through. If you think you have loyal customers, you they may not be as loyal as you think, especially in e-commerce. You know, I was looking at some statistics. One in particular really stood out to me was that mobile payments are going to pass the 50% milestone by 2026 in most markets. Mm-hmm. Say that again. Mobile payments will outpace, meaning a user's on a yeah. phone. Yes. And so the behavior that a person has on a phone is 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 going to be different than their desktop behavior in some cases. And the the circumstances in which someone is looking at something on their phone, and there's tons of data around, depending on the market, there are tons of people who are doing most of their e-commerce shopping on a mobile device. And and the behavior, the distractions when you're on a mobile device are just, <laughs> can, can really derail things. And so having great UX is instrumental in in getting past those things that you don't control when someone's on a mobile device. Mm-hmm. We all know what that looks like. Nora, so what, uh, and you don't have to say what you bought yeah. unless it's something kind of fun. But either way, Caitlin, too, your last purchase you made online, maybe that was this morning, yesterday, whatever. Where did you guys do that? Ooh, last purchase online. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, my last purchase online, this is a great example where I powered through some bad UX. I registered my kid oh, I for a, a, summer, a summer camp that I knew I wanted them to go to. Uh, it had come under a recommendation from someone else and it was finally available. And I went to my desktop because I sort of knew that they weren't going to have a good... <laughs> mobile experience just because it's like a small organization like an arts organization here in town and i so size matters (laughs) you can't (laughs) um it's a it's a small arts company essentially and so i didn't have trust um so i went to my my desktop and i um i actually had to like go 
I, I ended up having to check out using PayPal because when I tried using my credit card, something went funky. And so I, I put up with a lot <laughs> of of negative negativity in the experience, to be honest. I had to enter my kid's name three times, like same data over and over. Who, how many people are they losing who aren't willing to go through that? I don't know. Um, so, so then, so you, it was on desktop because you knew yeah. the mobile device experience is going to be bad, which to me, that's an interesting, uh, I was going to mention this earlier. I think good brands... People are willing to put up with some bullshit if they really want something, right? So I think a lot of people get away with bad UX because they either have a good brand or they have something that you're willing to kind of muscle your way through, right? I have an example of that. I uh, have been looking for a uh, puppy recently, and I've uh, been finding, I've been, I've adopted animals all my life, but I've been looking for a breeder and... I think every single dog breeder out there uses the same template from the 90s. <laughs> and holy smokes, it is so hard to find anything. You know, as soon as you want to go back, you just have to like surf through all this like weird text and things that are in giant letters and underlined and italicized. And it's so hard to navigate you know, there are there are puppies that are animated that are running across the screen <laughs> and like this really kind of like, uh, oh, man, what was the, the flash kind of animation? I mean, it, it's a really it's really kind of a time capsule. <laughs> but are you on a mobile device when you're doing this? I would never try to use one of those sites on a mobile device. Yeah. So yeah. so that's an interesting thing with user experience, because it's like they're a breeder. I don't know how many puppies a breeder produces. That sounds weird, but should they even invest in user experience? Those things are going to be sold no matter what. It's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, you could put yeah. $10,000 in the UX or build a Wix site that is an awful experience and you still win. Mm -hmm. So I do struggle with that too a little bit because sometimes it's just like, who cares? Doesn't well, really yeah. matter because you're gonna go through it no matter what. So that that's an int I think those are fewer and far between. They have a product that is highly desirable. True. Sure. That being said, I will also I will also make the note though that um, ninety eight percent of the websites look like that, and so there isn't a whole lot of competition happening between websites. I had, I did see maybe one or two that had a significantly better user experience. And I, I'll admit that I was more attracted to them because they looked more put together and professional. When I went to their site, that the content was updated recently, I felt like if I was to reach out to them through like a contact form, that it was more reliable, that I would hear back. And sure, that that's maybe some like, intrinsic bias that's happening where like it looks more professional so therefore i assume it's more professional but it you know it didn't stop me from reaching out to these other places that um had this kind of time capsule look from from the days of the internet long past i think i think in realms where you know you're competing against amazon you know these breeders aren't competing against amazon essentially that's an excellent point <laughs> you know but but for pretty much every other 
person out there that is trying to sell something online, if they're up against Amazon, they've got, they've got to bring it when it comes to UX, because nine times out of 10, somebody is just going to say, I'll just get it on Amazon. And if you want to compete, you have to compete with Amazon. Yeah. So I, I personally believe, especially with e-commerce, Amazon has set the bar, not just for digital. I mean, I guess it is digital. Maybe not all. They've just, they're a user experience company, right? I mean, oh, yeah. they figured out nobody wants to wait around for UPS that doesn't work on the weekends. Hey, we'll deliver on the weekends. You know, people hate paying for shipping. So they basically convinced us all to prepay for shipping, mm-hmm. which is still brilliant. But yeah, they, but if you look at their site, right, Amazon is not going to win any traditional design awards, right? No. But having a good user experience isn't necessarily about having a flashy design. Right. So I do think, you know, and that's where it's subjective, right? Because you can sit down with a designer and they just design this gorgeous page. And it's like, that is awesome if you didn't have to use it. You know, mm-hmm. if it was yeah. a poster that I could look at and it was eye candy, awesome. And I think, you know, we see this with our competitors as Lightburn all the time. They're like, yeah, that design is super sexy but it doesn't work you know Mm -hmm. so you know that's where kind of our philosophy of function over form wins no it's function and form well right good point i should give us more credit we want things to look really good but we want them to work even better if we had to pick one or the other we always pick function yeah, I think that's fair. For 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 an online user experience, it has to work. Um, you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't allow the person to do what they need to do, it's failing. Unless that's the point, which would be weird. But that would valid. be weird. Tricky. <laughs> but so let's go back. Like, how do you think Amazon or that's where you know, I struggle a little bit, even though we have the analytics and we have tools like uh, Full Story, which we can actually, to me, Full Story is probably the best tool I've ever used. But, you know, measuring UX, that's why it's so subjective. And it's it's not, I wish there was just a standard. Well, but Caitlin is saying there are. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of rattle off the standards before, but even those are subjective. Well, the standard is people have to be satisfied. Well, that's subjective two you know conversion rates are subjective because you might have four percent but you could have seven percent you might have three percent but in your industry the average is one percent you know so i think i think what i'm hearing from you is that it's not fixed not necessarily that it's subjective in that you can measure all of what we're talking about and you can you can put a stake in the ground and then correct or attempt to improve and then you can measure again and that's if it you know in my mind that when you say subjective i think about like do i like the way it looks do i does an one individual think it's good but i think there's more to that though there's like a feeling i don't know what the word is but like when you place an order on amazon you know it and it's gonna be here tomorrow and it's 11 p.m you're like at 9 a.m it's put on your doorstep you're like the checkout process was whatever but to me user experience is especially with e-commerce continues well past the time you say place order Mm -hmm. it goes all the way through delivery so i think you know there's a lot to look at with ux right so there's the user interface 
experience, which we deal with every day. But to me, there's going beyond the cart, right? There's all those things. When you call, and I've never called Amazon, but you call somebody, Shopify is a great example of this. It is blows my mind that you could pick up the phone and call Shopify, their 800 number, and some dude literally answers the phone like a human every time. It's like, how is that possible? You know, they have like a million customers and they still answer the phone with a human. And maybe that's changed in the last few months, but I don't think it has. So to me, that's that's part of the user experience. Of being a Shopify customer. Of being a Shopify customer. Yeah. Like, a Yeah. 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 I mean, so, you can have, you can have, you know, what oftentimes when we talk about user experience or when people hear uh, UX being thrown around, they immediately, immediately think digital, but, you know, even, you know, grocery stores, there, there's a user experience or um, in that case, I guess a customer experience to going to check out at, at a grocery store from the moment that you walk in the door from, you know, finding the different things that you're looking for. Typically you've got the produce kind of on the outside and then you've got the dairy and meat kind of around the perimeter as well and then you've got a lot of dried products on the inside and then your checkout you know kind of at the end of that maze and you know imagine it going into a grocery store where everything was just everywhere like that experience would be horrible you wouldn't be able to find anything you know imagine running into a dead end where then you couldn't get to the checkout like that would be a horrible user experience um and so I think that the term can apply to anything um and so I think that it does take some of the subjectivity out of it um, when you're trying to design for a large population. You know, there are some standards that, that people come to expect. You have created an excellent segue, Caitlin, to something that I wanted to talk about, which is just some low-hanging fruit Oh, great! that we can know that a lot of, you know, sites are still not getting right that are sort of like you we don't have to check conversion rates. We don't need to do surveys to understand that that we'd be making improvements if we did these things. One of the first things I wanted to talk about was security. A secure checkout process is something that, you know, is obviously in the best interest of a user so that their information is secure, but it's also a huge red flag as someone enters a site. We still see sites today that do not have a security certificate across the entire site, despite the fact that 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 I mean, I don't remember when that switch happened, Andy, back when I oh. first started doing e-commerce. The goal was that you would only add the security certificate to pages where it was needed. And the rest of the site was not secure. And that was intentional at one point. And then that changed. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, when we first started building sites, if you ran SSL across the whole site, it just bogged the whole site down. SSL historically was to encrypt the page back and forth between the browser, take some overhead, so the whole site was slower. But now it's so negligible because computing power's up so much that, yeah, it just makes sense to run on the so whole that's, site. That's one of the first things that um, uh, someone who's running an e-commerce site, especially if it's a few years old, should be looking at. If, if your entire site is not uh, secure, that is a major issue. That's going to turn people away, um, well, and that's, as it should. That's a huge red flag for Google yeah. too. I mean, Google yes. for organic ranking SEO purposes expects, I mean, that is just the, it was a luxury. Now it's, it's like airbags, right? That was a luxury once upon a time. Now they're standard. Same with SSL. So I think that's one thing that I hope most people who would be listening to this have already taken care of, but you'd be surprised. The next one is optimizing for mobile. That is still something that we see a lot of people not 
fully embracing. There is cost associated if you have an older site, but if if you do not bank on the fact that people are going to run over to their desktop like I did or like Caitlin did for her puppy, probably your product is not as um, uh, scarce uh, an item as Caitlin's uh, puppy is. <laughs> so we, you really got to meet people where they are and make sure that that mobile experience is just as good, if not better than the desktop. So I don't know, I forget how many years ago, mobile wasn't around. So we built desktop sites and then you started building MDOT sites that were mobile specific, different code base typically, then responsive uh, methodology really took hold and that's been the standard ever since. But I would, do you guys think responsive is still the best approach? Because I feel like we're constantly, you know, mobile devices are changing. You're constantly sacrificing, you're making, we're having front end developers make all these changes so that the mobile experience is different. You know, uh... is it'd be interesting to talk to a front end developer. And if it's easier, I mean, I'm sure, I'm guessing it's still, quicker, faster, less expensive for us to build responsive and then make those tweaks. But that's just something I've been noodling. Like, have we gotten to a point where now it's, you know, the needs of the user on a mobile device are so much different than desktop. And then you're, you're constantly making style sheet changes and all this stuff. I would argue that what I've, what I've seen and is that, um, desktop is sometimes sacrificed. You see, that the desktop experience is not optimized. Because the mobile experience is? The mobile experience is the focus. Interesting. Uh, I don't think we do that. I don't think we compromise that. But I have absolutely seen it where I go to a site on desktop and I know absolutely that no one cared what I as a desktop user experienced. That was all mobile. Yeah. Another another trend that I see is... Um... You know, you go to a website online on your desktop and you see something and then you go to that same website um, online on your phone and you get, you know, kind of a, a big banner at the top that says download our app. Yeah. And I think that is probably the direction that it's moving in more so um, so that, you know, you have app centric shopping experiences on your mobile devices and it is reserved for uh, and design is reserved for. Uh, web pages on desktop which target absolutely they can they can do that and we'll download their mm -hmm. app some random leggings website yeah that you know no i'm not downloading right. an app something that you maybe make a purchase from once a year you're not going to have an app right well and i, I, I would argue that it, it's the right decision to not only may go mobile first, but maybe even mobile only. If your marketing strategy is is influencers on social media, is you know Instagram, and you know that's how you're getting your audience, and you look at the the demographics, it it, it might make sense. I mean, I've I've had I don't know how many brands. My only experience of them is on a mobile device, so. So, you know, I think it is looking at your user base, your audience, and, and letting them tell you where you should invest your time. Yeah, and I, it's kind of interesting. The exact opposite of that is mobile first. Like, so Robinhood, the, the stock trading platform, started as an app. They literally didn't even have a website other than an informational website. Their app is obviously continually improving. What I've noticed with them is their desktop experience 
is improving much faster. Hmm. So there, it, it's so it's interesting to see if like I would be curious to see their stats. Are are they getting more and more users? That are actually just using a full with all the charts and all the stuff that you can look at? Have they seen a huge uptick in? desktop users because i almost exclusively use I, i'll i'll look at my portfolio on the app here and there but anytime i make a trade uh or or i'm doing research it's always on my desktop so it's kind of interesting to to your point i think you have to know your user yeah i think that's exactly right so uh, you know speaking of user experience and improvements ordered uh you know bilberry west the uh, we ordered some. Oh yeah. We ordered some machinery, which is started to show up, and it's just like literally huge piece of machinery that is broken up across dozens and dozens of boxes, all being delivered by UPS for the most part, uh, which is cool. So I don't have to schedule LiftGate or anything like that. So we got a shipment. It was the first shipment that we got, which is over a month ago now. Was three boxes. Two of them showed up, one went missing. Ne so UPS has been sending e me emails, hey, you know, here's a tracking number. Uh, the person, the company we bought it from must have put my email address in there, which has triggered these UPS emails, I'm assuming. So I got tracking emails. One, they have one shipment coming to one email address and they send me three emails. So they sent me one email per tracking number, which I thought was annoying uh, because I've had another shipment that had like 20 plus packages so i got like all of a sudden one day my email was just like boom so to me that was a horrible user experience not like were those emails from ups you're saying yeah ups was content yeah so there's, yeah. there's a disconnect between you know ups the way that they're um organizing that yeah they, so they aren't they aren't paying attention to you literally as sending me one email recipient. per box even though the label on the boxes as they started to show up said one of one, 22 yeah. so they know that that is a group so anyways so that was kind of annoying but you get over it right it's not that big of a deal you get 25 emails instead of one but what was more user experience annoying so on that first shipment we got three it was coming in three boxes two of them showed up great got them one has gone missing over a month it's been missing ups still says it's in transit if you look at their website <laughs> they never like lies they could reach out to me and be like hey your package was delivered hey it's on its way but they can't reach out and be like hey we fucked up and we can't find this one what can we do to make it right they just if i never would have reported it it would just be in where in forever like it was sort of heartbreaking that they would just be like yeah we lost it we're not going to do anything proactively about it I feel like that is a great example of putting the business need in front of the user need. on the digital side if you track that package it just says it's in transit like to me that's a bad user experience it doesn't say hey it's been in transit for 32 days probably never gonna make it there we don't know what happened give us a call or how can we I, like there's just no. an opportunity that that situation created that their site does not support I, yeah, and I would put that in the low-hanging fruit area is to look at your communication and see if you can streamline that and give more power to your end user to define what level of communication they want. Yeah, well, I think one way to find a ton of low-hanging fruit, this is actually a practical, actionable thing that I am always dumbfounded 
more people don't do. I know what you're going to say. Is they don't even, like, it is shocking when you talk to a client that comes to you and says, hey, we want to fix our e-commerce site. Okay, cool. You know, what do you guys want to do? And they have some ideas. And then, then you ask them, have you ever actually used your own site? Well, why would I do that? I don't like, you know, so it's, it's to me, take 10 minutes. If you have an e-commerce site, literally go buy something from yourself all the way through shipping, uh, like a secret shopper. And I guarantee you will find at least something to fix. I will add to that too, depending on where your stats are, do it on a mobile device. Mm -hmm. I think we have lots of clients who are only looking at their sites at work. And so they're never experiencing it on a mobile device. So yeah, that's, that's one of the, the things that you always advocate for Andy that I love because it's so simple. Yeah. It doesn't cost you anything. Well, credit card fees, whatever. Well, you can, you can cancel that. I hope if it's your business that you have a, a line to, to get a refund. But yeah, that's a very simple thing to keep an eye on that I think a lot of people miss. And, and it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to get a user group together. At a bare minimum, use your own site on a regular basis. Another thing that I think a lot of e-commerce sites miss is clear calls to action. Like, are you actually telling people what you want them to do? I, I think a great example of, of where that using your own site can come into play because you'd be surprised how, how often you've got a great, lovely banner image on an e-commerce site and it isn't actually driving you to the thing that the person might want to buy next or using language on buttons that isn't clear about what you're going to see next. Submit. Yeah. Click, click here. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think something that happens even before people get onto your site is how long the site might take to load. Uh, yeah. You know, if that, mm -hmm. if that site is taking more than three seconds to load, there's like 40% of users that will just leave right away. And if you increase that loading speed, it can really, really... Uh, serve you well. And then once that person's on your homepage, you know, making sure like Nora, what you said, you know, there are clear call to action that the homepage is organized and using really clear hierarchy um, so that people, you know, focus on what you want them to focus on. And that, you know, when they get into the navigation, that that navigation is streamlined and again, organized with that hierarchy is so important so that people can you know, get into the site quickly with that slow or with that fast loading speed and then find what they want quickly with organized navigation. Yeah, that's a great example of where, you know, programming and how your server is set up can influence user experience. Mm -hmm. We forget like every piece of your digital space, a backend developer who's who's optimizing a server is, is impacting user experience. Mm -hmm. And I saw something that it was this startling statistic that e-commerce companies saw an increase in conversions just by changing the language of a button from register to continue oh wow like that's all it took to keep some keep people moving forward in the process didn't change the process at all just change the label so that's you know those those can be easy things to improve and reduce friction for people you know it's clearing a path so that they can get to the end of you know actually making a purchase as as quickly as possible. What do you guys think of uh, e-commerce sites? If you've ever experienced, I'm curious your opinion on e-commerce sites that, you know, you're there, you found the product, 
it's been a great experience. You put it in your cart, you're ready to check out, and then they start hitting you with offers. Add this on, add a warranty, add blah, blah, blah. Go when Daddy, I'm in the which when I'm in the cart? Yeah. Cart yeah. through checkout. Like they keep trying to upsell you. Which on one hand as a sales guy, I'm like, well, yeah, you gotta do that. And then on the other hand, I'm like, it often results in my well, like, if you're buying a domain name at GoDaddy, you wanna smash your head like finding a domain, <laughs> seeing if it's available, putting your cards like, wow, that was easy. And then it's just like puke. They just puke offers on you and to the point where you're like, I don't even I think I just bought an email server. I'm not sure. I think that's a great example of Go GoDaddy has some market share, so they they have some confidence in the choices they're making. And then also they're not making money off of that. Yeah, right. Domains are really loss leaders. I get it. I mean it's a loss leader. Yeah, it's it's so I I think most e-commerce should not do that. That is a bad decision for in most. U-Haul does that. I don't know. If, have you guys ever rented a U-Haul using their e-commerce? Mm, no. I mean, members of my family have. Oh, highly, highly recommend it, especially with the contactless. U-Haul is such a, a like kudos to them and whoever's building that you rent a truck you pick your location they do upsell you but it's reasonable like hey do you need moving blankets well they're like that's thoughtful upselling and i think that's the difference yes it's very thoughtful upselling and then you know they've even since covid taken it they had these boxes before i bought a truck i used to rent pickup trucks a lot so i have a, a Probably once a month I was renting from U-Haul for something. That's a sign you need to buy a truck, maybe. Yeah, so I ultimately just bought a truck. But uh, now, like, I just thought that was awesome with COVID. You can rent it. They'll give you this code. They use geofencing, so they know that you're actually at the location. They'll send you this code once you actually get there, and it unlocks, like, a lockbox with a key, and you're gone. That's cool it's the best because you can just do it you don't have to sit there and wait like wait for some cashier dude that's also getting 17 phone calls from people checking availability Mm -hmm. it's like awesome it's just the best experience but i think to me that's a good example of more and more companies need to look at the full experience not just what we do at lightburn which is the digital part but all that other stuff yeah absolutely because if they you know if you haul before it was good and it went to phenomenal in my opinion once they add the totally contactless, grab your key. I think it would be real, really interesting to understand, you know, who was advocating for that within U-Haul. And I bet you could find a similar company that has, that isn't doing that <laughs> because of, you know, who's, who's making decisions internally and, and who, like, how do they decide that that's worth, worth it to them to invest in the infrastructure that's needed to, to do something like that. I, I, I think it, it gets into the, the core of the business. If you are how user focused you are and how forward thinking you are about it. So let's talk a little bit about tools of the trade. We already talked about Google analytics, Andy, you mentioned full story. That's something that's actually uh, recording individual sessions that you can look at and you can kind of segment based on, they, they have a concept 
um, of rage clicking that, that you can track by, which is really interesting. So you can see frustration points. Hotjar is another one that we use that'll give you heat maps of where people are spending their time. Usertesting.com is something that we use a lot for more of that qualitative uh, individual user sessions that you can record and, and the people on them, you can just sort by demographics. How, how do you... Uh... What is your guys' opinion on usertesting.com? So I know a lot of people sign I up. I love it. Do you? Yeah. I, I just feel like, yeah, it's a side hustle for a lot of people. They're trying to get these, you know, gigs. Well, I, I don't think it's as good as talking to real past or present users, but... One thing that you can do with it, Andy, is that you can actually invite people to it so you don't oh, have you? to just okay. use yeah absolutely and so that's another way there are other tools besides usertesting.com but uh, that do similar individual sessions will tell you a different story than just looking at analytics without commentary and i think that's really important but the, with all these tools where do you start and i think caitlin you may have some good perspective on that sure um so I kind of want to take it back to like square one a little bit here. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you're thinking about whether or not you're hitting the mark of if your product can be used by the people that are your target audience, um, you know, if they're able to achieve the goals that they want to achieve on that site. And and so, you know, when you're when you're doing that, you really need to be in touch with who your audience is, like who are your users? What do they want to accomplish? And, you know, what pain points do they currently have in that overall user experience of, you know, in this case, you know, finding an item, weighing the options of like, if they want that, or if they want something from another site, or, you know, if they want to go to Target and browse, um, you know, and they've, they've finally come back to your site, and they've either, you know, checked out and bought the item or not. And so one method that I really like, you know, if you do have the luxury of talking with um, your users is creating that journey map, or you could even, um, you know, create one kind of fictionalize it. It's a it's a map that goes through the entire experience of, you know, that first moment of, of that trigger to decide that you want to buy something to going to the site to navigating through the site to, you know, do they have to register? Do they have to create an account? What does that process entail? You know, do they have the the buttons that they need on the site to be able to, to do that? Can they access them? Are they big enough? You know, there are all these different questions that you need to ask to make sure that the site is usable and that at the end that they are getting the result that they want. And so you can create this whole map that kind of goes, you know, peaks and valleys or highs and lows um, and, and shows a almost topographical view of that user's experience of your site. And that's a really great way to kind of get this uh, emotional look at uh, your users and really kind of uh, create that empathy with them and understand their journey through, through that process. And then once you have that, it's great to create a user flow and make sure that that journey makes sense from every angle. So um, you know, I talked a little bit about a grocery store earlier and you wouldn't want somebody to like walk into your grocery store and then all of a sudden get stuck and have to like leave the grocery store in order to get back in and go all the way around and, you know, finally check out that that would be a horrible experience. <laughs> nobody would nobody would ever go grocery shopping. So I think, you know, this process is really kind of using 
some building blocks, some pencil and a paper. Um, there's lots of uh, online tools, um, both free and paid, so that you can create a user flow and make sure that people can navigate through your site from every different angle. You know, whether they get an error or you know they haven't submitted something correctly. That all of those like minor snafus that people run into. You know, I call that the sad path. You know, it's not always going to be the person that takes that happy path through your site. You have to consider what's going to happen if they abandon the cart. You know, what's going to happen if they want to build a wish list and then add things from that wish list to the cart? Like, what is that flow like? You know, you want it to be seamless and to make sense. And then, you know, from there, it's great to start brainstorming uh, with your team or by yourself. Um, eventually, you get into some wireframing. Um, and that's really when you set that visual hier hierarchy. Hierarchy on your website is so important. People need to be able to find the things that they want to find the most, fastest and easiest. And so there's lots of different wireframing tools you can use. They're, you know, they're online, there's free ones. But the best, I think, is to start with a pencil and a paper um, where you can just kind of sketch your ideas out really quickly. And, and from there, you kind of just get into like the nitty gritty of... Uh, making sure that UI elements are usable and and human interface guidelines and the material guidelines by Google are great. And that's Apple and Google respectively. And, you know, eventually once the site is built, just making sure that you are doing as much user testing as you can. And a lot of times you might be considered a user. You know, if you're building a site for, you know, a, a snack company, like, I eat snacks. I like to buy food online. Like I'm going to consider myself a user. And, you know, Nora, like you said, take yourself through the experience of using the site and, and think about it from the perspective of somebody that's using it for the first time. Try to do multiple different things. You know, if you, if you can't do user testing, you can always have your friend do it or a coworker go through it. Unless you're, you know, in a really, really niche kind of market, um, creating something that's very, you know, highly specialized for a certain group of people. Chances are you can find somebody to to you know putz around on your site and and get some feedback to you. Yeah, and I think I think eventually once you're trying to analyze uh, that user experience and if things are going well, you want to set some some KPIs. You know, just keep track of them. Yeah, that's that's my my general process. One thing I would add to that, I I think a lot of people are like, our site's broken. We got to blow it up. And I sometimes agree with that because like you said, the puppy site probably should be blown up start over. <laughs> but I think, you know, just like our home, right? You buy a house, you like your house, but one, the bathroom over time gets dated and you can fix that. You don't have to tear down the whole house and build to build a new bathroom. So I, I think a lot of, there's a huge opportunity for organizations that have a site that maybe have minimal budget or even just time to make incremental. So we're, we're big advocates. I'm a huge advocate of incremental improvements over blow it up, start over. Obviously, if it doesn't exist like Billberry, we're, we're creating that experience from, from scratch. But we will immediately go into continual improvement. I know we're not going to get everything right day one. Well, of course, we're going to get it right, right? But so, yeah, I think, you know, if what are your guys' thoughts? If you... If I said, hey, I got this site, I have 5000 that's all I have, $5,000 for you guys to do your magic, where would you two say, 
let's go. What would you guys do first? Oh, gosh. If we're wanting to make those incremental gains, I think understanding where the flow has the most friction and then zoning in on those elements. Yeah. The the beautiful thing about design is that it's incredibly iterative. And so I think the first thing I would look at would be navigation. Um, if your navigation is shot, the website is shot. If people can't get to where they need to go, that is going to be a huge problem. And that's not that's not just like in the literal sense, but you know, if the if the navigation is confusing or is not getting you um, the results that you want, if you're having to hunt for things, that's going to be a problem. So I think that that's probably the first thing that I would look at is the navigation. Yeah, the the other couple things that I would look at that aren't necessarily going to break the bank would be just help pages. So clear shipping rules, clear returns, privacy information, making sure that those are easy to access doesn't take a lot of effort, but it can be really important for people to feel confident in a purchase. I'd look at mobile, I'd look at security, and I'd also look at if if you had registration that was impacting the ability to check out, I would advocate strongly for removing that and allowing guests check out if possible. I think that's a huge sticking point for a lot of users as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a little narrow, but I think that happens a lot um, that that registration gets in the way of people completing a purchase. So my answer to that would be, I, I like the navigation thing. We've seen some pretty big, quick wins with some simple navigation changes, but I would even, if, if I had a, a small budget, wanted to see what I could do with it, I would put it all in a performance. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Like that's just speed I, everything up. Yeah. It's just amazing how many people come to us and their sites are aren't ranking well, yeah, you know, that's... or converting well. And to Caitlin's point earlier, you get those really bogged down pages, mm-hmm. especially on mobile. And then you look at it as a developer and you're like, well, it's because it's a WordPress site and you have 47 mm-hmm. plugins and they all have 32 JavaScripts. And then that's when we rebuild things. Looted on every page. So you have literally... 700 javascripts loading oh and your images are 20 megs a piece i i think really like just this this little conversation is why you need a few different perspectives in the room when you're deciding where because like i completely agree with you that you you focus on on speed that's that's one of the first places that you could make improvements that have real impact in a number of ways you know it, it caitlin as a designer might find something that's really important as well and might take less time. And so you got to get some, some different uh, disciplines together to, to sort of bargain for that budget and, and you got to rank it for value, right? You could spend that $5,000 on just designing a homepage and that gets you nowhere or not not as far as some of these other things we've talked about. And we've done that too. When we do audits, UX audits or just site audits, um, you know, we'll we'll outline everything that we found, kind of give them a ranking and then pick them off, which I, which I think is a great approach too. And I I would add like every dollar like all Amazon did, I mean there is improve the user experience of a big box. Mm-hmm. That's that's I mean it's that's a very basic obviously they there's a lot to Amazon but I just take a step back and it's like, geez, all they did was make going to Walmart easier, 
like yeah. way better. And and Andy, like to that point, like I think about, you know, the the online shopping experience is for a lot of people replacing that shopping experience of like going into a store. I have this like very fond memory of going into a Nordstrom's for the first time just a few years ago at the mall. And it is a beautiful store. Like walking in is such an experience. And, you know, the way that the store is designed and the different displays are set up are created purposefully to engage with the customer in that moment in time. You know, the the displays are, uh, you know, of clothes that are, if it's summer, the, the clothes are summer clothes, you know, the shoes are summer shoes, like people are seeing the things that they want because they apply to them in that place in time. And I think that same approach applies to an online experience. You know, even even when walking into Nordstrom, there's a certain smell that you, you know, are, are surrounded by. And so I think the more that you can bring those interactions into an online experience, the more successful you're going to be. And I think we see those a lot too in like micro interactions. Um, you know, on Spotify, if you press the like button, there's hearts that explode. And I think those little moments of joy and delight are uh, really important in such a kind of static world or a world that can be so static if, if you don't pay close attention to making it enjoyable. I think that's such a lovely thought. Caitlin, <laughs> I think it really sums up the power of user experience too, and and how much it can influence not only purchasing decisions, but longer brand experience and loyalty. When I think about the takeaways from this conversation, I think what we've proven is that there are places that you can improve the user experience on your site today without a heavy investment. We've talked about a lot of opportunities to make an impact without blowing your site up. And spending energy and effort on improving UX is almost always going to be worth your bottom line. What improving your UX means might be different for different companies. Investing in it is is usually worth it. Yeah, and I, I would add that I think it's it's a lot of work, but it's easier than I think a lot of people think to just take a step back and look at like, if you take a step back and look at your experience, I, I I'm, you don't need lots of fancy tools to- Don't to... say you don't need light burn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need light burn to do the work. You do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you haven't looked at your site, take a step back. There's probably, to your point, a lot of low hanging fruit. I think that's, you know- People spend a lot of money on their digital presence and there's still a lot of low hanging fruit. So yeah, I think, absolutely. I think the beautiful thing about user experience is that we are all users. We are user experience is just a person's experience of using something. And we are all that in this yeah. day and age. And so anybody, anybody can go onto a website and, and pick out things that they like that work for them and things that suck and don't work. And so that that is like the lowest threshold of being able to, you know, make some strides towards a better user experience on your own website um, is literally going through it yourself and writing a list of things that you think could potentially work a little bit better. And there you go. Everybody's got homework now. I love it. Everyone's got homework. Go use your website today. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I kind of asked you last minute and it's been great having you be part of this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. 
that's our show for today. Tune in next week for episode eight of Beyond the Cart for our very first client profile episode. We're diving deep into the journey one retailer took to get from a broken, frustrating e-commerce site to one of Lightburn's favorite success stories. Beyond the Cart is produced by Lightburn. Our episode today was produced and edited by Ryan Dabrowski. Our music is the song Let's Go, Go, Go by Tiger Blood Jewel. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your audio. And you can always learn more about e-commerce at lightburn.co. I'm Nora Lal. And I'm Andrew Windheiser. And we'll see you next time on Beyond the Cart.